solo and group clinicians alike are buzzing about Therapy Notes, the number one trusted EHR among mental health professionals. With live customer support 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and an extensive feature library, Therapy Notes is sure to streamline your workflow, giving you time to care more and worry less. Try them for two months free using promo code MODERN today. Are you looking for ways to attract and retain private pay clients? Thryzer is a payment platform for therapists built to help clients automatically tap into their out-of-network benefits and save on therapy up front. Check out our special link, join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist, and use the code modern therapists to activate $2,500 in free payments with Thryzer. You're listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. So if you've listened to us before, thank you. And welcome, actually, in person to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. This is our second ever live podcast. I think you have to say it the way you normally say it on the podcast, though. What's that? You have to say it the way you normally say it on the podcast, or I'm just not going to be able to start. All right, so... Welcome back to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. I'm Kurt Widhelm with Katie Vernoy. <laughs> and this is the podcast that is about everything that therapists face in their lives, in their practice. And if you haven't yet given us a rating and a review, it definitely helps us out. So if you would do that, that would be great. This is being recorded at the Therapy Reimagined 2019 conference. Woohoo! And super happy to have an audience here because part of this goes back to our original discussions around what we wanted to do that led us to here. And this was something where it wasn't really, let's have an annual conference. It started out with, let's have a couple of days of collecting all of these conversations that therapists are having to put it together to unite us in some way to make us not feel so alone and maybe actually start doing something with this. And we set out, and we had a really wonderful experience with our conference last year that really accomplished that. And we've heard some feedback from some of our attendees who are back here this year of people who left their jobs because of last year's conference, which now that we have that kind of responsibility is kind of scary. But people who left their (laughs) jobs started their practices and now have full practices a year later based on the inspiration out out of our first conference. Wow. I don't even know what to say to that. And so now that we're here at the end of the first day of 2019's conference... And seeing the energy again coming alive out of you, our audience members, and also hearing some of our repeat people coming back to us and saying, what's next? What's next for me and my practice? What's next for the therapy movement? And in talking through this and talking with Katie about this, going back to our original conversation and knowing where we've grown The answer is, we're 90% there. We're 90% to this message. We need kind of this group to come together and help us figure out what that 10% is. We have some ideas of what the social movements are that we're building towards. That 90% is continuing to build. But in just over a year, 
therapy hasn't been fixed. <laughs> we didn't fix it yet. Is that what you're telling me? Yeah. We have a little bit more work to do. Part of this is the parallel process that Katie and I are growing through that was really exemplified by this conversation that I had earlier of, now that we're here, now what? And we're going to take some questions. We're going to take some ideas from you throughout. We have some of the points that we want to hit that illustrate not only where therapy has been, but where we can go with this. So because we're doing the podcast, I get to disagree with you. I don't know that we're 90% there. I mean, I think, I think in truth, there's an aspect of this where I think that there's times when we're 92% there, and I think that there's times when we're 29% there. I think there's so much that can be changed and probably needs to be changed. And I think for me, as far as our therapy movement, I feel like even in the conversations that I'm listening to this today, this weekend, and in the conversations we've had over the last six months or eight months or whatever it is since we even, you know, hired speakers, like, it just feels like the things are constantly shifting. And I feel like my mind is expanding in a way where the conversation I want to have today some of them we had today, and some of them we weren't ready to have when we started planning this conference. And so I feel like there is this aspect of being able to open up some, some new ideas and some new connections so that we continue to grow and change and actually do the things that we are committing to do. So maybe we're 90% there, or maybe we're not. I don't know. And I think that this is okay, because... By definition, the therapy movement should never end. That in some of the conversations that we've been having, that the idea of one cookie-cutter approach being pushed onto therapists through, through therapist education, we, we already have that struggle that we've come to, but the very same people are saying, and you should also be aware of the intersectionality of all of these very unique and specific things of all of these other populations. These are mutually exclusive ideas. We cannot have a one-size-fits-all approach to a wide variety of complex humans with complex reactions to different things. And this has been something that we have very much known from the beginning of our therapy movement, that we're different, none of us are going to be perfect for everybody, and that's a good thing. That we should be unique with our message and let the people who are going to respond to us as individuals, let the people come to us who are likely going to respond to us anyway. Don't outwork your clients. That, in, in the most positive way I can say this, you are not special for everybody. And once again, that's a good oh, thing. Kurt, you're special for everyone. <laughs> but what comes with this, though, is there's a lot of shame when you step out of that box. We are a profession, I heard this recently in response to one of our previous episodes, we are a profession that eats our young. We, we chew up people entering into this field. Wait, wait, wait. We eat our young? It's a metaphor, Dude. Katie. <laughs> I, I think it, it, can, it can be true at times. I don't know that I agree that we always eat our young. But I, I think it is something where we do end up in a situation where we have ways that are, can we consistently do things. And when we get too far away from the reason that we are doing therapy, we just kind of continue to do the things because that's the way they've always been done. And I think the, the people that I've, I've talked to here that are like, I'm in practice 30 years, I'm in practice 15 years, I've been in 
in community mental health for 10 years or whatever, the thing that I think stands out for the people in this room and at this conference are these are the folks that are continuing to do the work of understanding who we are as human beings and how that shows up in the room and how we actually can do this work and continue doing this work. Because I think there are too many people that have burned out and are still the zombies that are walking through the work. And, and if that's what therapy is, it's not effective. And so the people that are here, whether they are brand new, just started school, or have been in practice for 30 years, I think my sense of the modern therapist that we're interacting with today, this weekend, is that we're not doing that. We're not eating your, our young. We are actually making a situation better by actually learning and sharing and growing and having the conversations we need to have. And if I can get Ben Caldwell to come up here and maybe speak a couple of words on this and also to become a now just above one-time guest on, <laughs> on our show. Uh, we reference Ben quite a bit. but I think almost every episode we rep- reference Ben. Poor Ben. We're like, hey... So <laughs> This table is super wobbly, man. Yes. I think I put it on a bad spot. So one of the points that I've heard Ben talk about quite a bit is the idea that therapist education is broken. And he waxes poetic about this in a number of different ways. And I'm going to lead this with kind of the point of a lot of the systems that we have, the very idea of a system is the system's primary goal is to protect the system. And when we look at what therapy education is, the system needs a disruption. What can we do to disrupt the therapy education system to actually start teaching people in their graduate programs what actually works from the beginning of their education. So just a small question, no, no pressure or anything. You want this in 30 seconds or less, right? Yes, because the next point is going to be about you. <laughs> so I think the short version is, you know, there, there are tremendous and, and like system-shattering changes we could try to propose to the educational system for therapists that are, for various political and practical reasons, unrealistic. But in the short term, the thing that we could realistically do that would meaningfully make us better in how we teach and train therapists is to spend more time on therapist ways of being on actually who we are as human beings with people who are different from us, and less on ways of doing, less on, frankly, theory and technique. Uh, There are so many theories that you can learn about how to do therapy, and you don't need to know all of them. You know, Scott Miller quotes the, the research very effectively in saying that the model you choose, as long as you have something, as long as you're working from some kind of a roadmap for therapy, the model you choose accounts for maybe 1% of the variability in treatment outcome. So why do we spend so much of your graduate education talking about theory instead of who you are as a human being and how you can work with people who are difficult and people you don't like and people whose background is unfamiliar to you? And I think the the struggle, because this is the basically the people who created the the curriculum here. You know, we have Nagin as well that was helping, and we had a couple other people on the the panel. But the conversations that we were having in developing this conference that had continuing education as well as this intersection between clinician 
and clinical, clinician and business, clinical and business. Like when we're looking at these things and we're saying we, not, we need to provide continued education, we are walking in a very interesting line in making sure that we're able to show that these things actually do intersect, that they actually do make an impact on our clients' progress and on their lives. But it's so interesting how even in, in pushing this envelope with continuing education, we have found that there are times that we just couldn't provide continued education for something that was clearly in the benefit of ourselves and our clients because it doesn't line up with the current rules. And that part is, I think that's where I want to go into advocacy to make sure that we actually are training people to do this job because if, they, if, if everybody is out of the job and they're not doing the thing that they've been put on this earth to do, we end up having the situations where there's not great mental health access. We get have the situations where we don't have quality mental health service, even for the people that are able to access it, because we're walking around, like I said before, like zombies. And I think, or completely poor, because we don't know how to make money, or we're in situations where people are not willing to pay us money. And I think, to me, being able to have these conversations impacts the profession so hugely, but continuing education says it has to be for the benefit of the client. And to me, I think we need to benefit our clients, but we have to be able to take care of ourselves in order to do that. And so I, I'm, I've got to stop talking because I'm just getting mad. <laughs> I know we have a, a, at least more than a few pre-licensees in this room, and one of them I'm, I'm actually going to maybe even call up here. Uh, Poor Carrie. Carrie Weta. She is... <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, I... <laughs> So Carrie is, she's actually in, in this educational crunch right now. She's also the co-host of the podcast, Very, Very Bad, Bad Therapy. Therapy. Such um, a good podcast. Thanks, guys. What? So, <laughs> it's a very good podcast about oh, very you. bad therapy. Yeah, it's true. Carrie's going to, Carrie has no idea what I'm about to I ask. I have no idea. We totally This, this is a point hot that Nagin Mosavian, who's also part of our Therapy Reimagined team and also was one of my former students and works in my practice now, but a point that she brought up to me about education is that especially students are only ever taught or shown perfect examples of what therapy is, that there is no room for failure that you are only ever shown the exact perfect client for the exact perfect theory by the master of the person who invented the theory. <laughs> and, then, and then you go yeah. to other conferences and you see them talk and they're like, yeah, I don't believe that anymore. I'm like, then why don't you change your friggin' book? <laughs> <laughs> and Sorry, total Also, I, I really like how every narrative therapy example involves a child. And, and I don't understand how to translate it for adults. <laughs> well, and this is really where putting Carrie on the spot up here is, again, a parallel process of it's are okay we, we to like... not know. It's okay to struggle with not having a fully formed idea. And when you can take ownership of that vulnerability for your clients, you're actually modeling the things that make us successful human beings who work with other human beings. And this complexity of who our clients are, no matter at what stage of your career that you are, research shows, as Ben pointed out, Scott Miller's research shows, most therapists reach their average, or reach their peak effectiveness within about their first 100 or so hours of client exposure. 
whether you are in school or at the end of your career, the research shows that potentially you're not getting any better. So you're putting Carrie on the spot and making her stand here yes. without no, asking her a question. But it's what, cool. What also, <laughs> what also speaks to this What is, is the question, Kurt? Carrie, Get to the question. We, Kurt we just called Carrie talk. up it's here. Cool. What is it's the cool. question? But Carrie, <laughs> Carrie came to our conference last year. She's here this year. Her graduate education has gone step in step with what we talk about here. And wondering what your experience has been learning kind of two different models of what therapy is mm -hmm. and how that's actually working out for you this early in your career. Are we totally confusing you? Is basically what no, Kurt's no, no, saying. No, no, not at all. It's real weird. I'll put it that way. No, like I truly in my, in, in the graduate program that I'm in, which I'm not trashing. I want to put that out there. I'm not trashing it at all. There are some professors here tonight. <laughs> Thank you for your service. Um, but but it truly, I am very aware, as I'm in my traineeship now, that very little of, of what I'm actually getting in my graduate training is super applicable to actually like what I need on a day-to-day -day basis with clients and certainly what I'm going to need when I graduate. It's like I'm, I'm in my final semester, my final academic semester, and only now they're like, oh, by the way, you're going to need to get a job after school. Here's how to do a CV. <laughs> bum, bum, bum. I know, right? Like, wait, 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 really? Like a job? And and it is really disconcerting. It's, it's unfortunate and it's scary for a lot of us because we have it's almost like they don't they don't want you to know now I've been lucky because I happen to find your guys's podcast thank you I'm shameless a shameless plug for for the modern therapist survival guide podcast but it kind of gave me it the the way you guys talked about we don't get this in grad school I was like wait you don't oh okay I better listen and thank god I did because you really don't. So I feel like on the I've been getting outside of school, honestly, a really great education, but only because I went out there and found it. It's not really brought up at all until the very last minute, and that sucks. So yeah, I don't know. That's been my experience. Is that what you meant? It sucks. It sucks. Is what, what, yeah. one of our so, biggest short fans. Of it. So basically, we we got to the place of therapist education sucks, which I don't know that it sucks. I think it's broken. Well, I think it yeah. no I think it, I think it's broken because I think that it isn't relevant there are parts because I've not been in school for a million years so but there's parts that aren't relevant to what we actually end up doing in the room and I think for me what I really experienced in my education was that as an MFT, I was learning how to be a private practitioner, but I ended up being in community mental health for 15 years mm -hmm. and I learned I had a whole other education in the public mental health system that was absolutely not taught to me in my, my mental health education. And I know that there are folks here from all over the country that have all different types of education. And I think that there are some that have started incorporating some business stuff. And there's some that have started incorporating some things that are more on the, the social justice side, which is the stuff that we're, that we're calling folks towards. But I, I don't know that it sucks. I think that there, there are some, probably some programs that do suck. And I think there, are, I honestly believe there's therapist mills that, that, decide that they want to make money off of people who want to become therapists and Ben is like raring to go <laughs> he's like sir can I have a, a, a question here but I think that there are, are pieces of our education system that have really led to a situation where we have a mental health access problem with a whole bunch of therapists without jobs 
as a graduate educator in mental health care. I'm not talking about you, Ben. I'm not. No, I'm not. I don't take it personally. And listen, there's, there is a lot about graduate education in mental health that legitimately sucks. And where I actually would go that far, even though I know, Katie, you're, you're reluctant to, uh, and I'm, I'm somebody who participates in this system, right? But there is no evidence anywhere, literally not a shred, that we are more effective with 60-unit graduate degrees than we were with 48-unit or 36-unit graduate degrees. Now, these added requirements have been put in place by very well-meaning people for understandable reasons, but without the sort of uh, thoughtful, big-picture are we ultimately doing something that is to the benefit of clinicians and their clients or not? Because it is so much more expensive now to become a therapist with a 60-unit degree requirement and all the, the process that comes along with getting licensed. Should we and, do, and should we do point, this sing-along? The therapist for the wealthy by the wealthy? Yeah. <laughs> well, but this also brings up the point of... A lot of the graduate programs teach a private practice model that was prevalent in the 70s and 80s. But with the rising cost of education, what it does is it forces recent graduates out into these community mental health jobs that they're even less prepared for. And for so sure. what we're doing is we're accelerating the cycle of burnout for people entering into this field yeah. in the, in the quote-unquote best protections of clients. We're actually making things worse by trying to make things better. I don't disagree with you, but I guess my question would be... And, I and don't this is, disagree with you, but that was a lot of hedging, man. That was a lot of hedging. That's a, that's a like, triple Lutz in one sentence. <laughs> my question would be, as somebody who's, who's like, I see this from a, a variety of different perspectives, what do you do about it? Because we can sit here all day and, and you know, bond over how expensive it is to become a therapist, how difficult the process is, how the education doesn't necessarily match what you are then called upon to do. But what do you actually do to change it? And just as a quick example, like I was talking with Carrie and Ben on, on their podcast about if we, for good understandable reason, reduce the requirement for licensure from 3,000 hours to 2,000 hours, that's fantastic and understandable and serves a lot of good, but then you are all of a sudden bringing in thousands of people to license eligibility all at once, and that puts downward pressure on rates and on salaries and has these negative systemic effects that we don't want, at least in the short term. So what do you do? Even if I agree with you, and in many ways I do, that, that graduate education is problematic, let's say. So this moves it... <laughs> then what? This actually moves it to its money. We, we actually have to pay therapists. And we have to pay them a living wage. And this is something that... I'm, I'm looking around the room. If you're one of the people who's listening to this podcast, like all of the heads are nodding up and down. <laughs> but we actually have to pay people once they get into the system. And, they, and it has to be a livable wage because we cannot have people who are worried about how to fill out their forms to make sure that their hours are actually going to count and spending their waking hours barely teetering on crisis themselves, taking care of the most vulnerable of our population. And this is where the pressure of the therapy movement actually has to take place, is pressuring agencies to pay more. Standing on this stage is 
somebody who started the hashtag post the pay campaign in a lot of the Facebook groups. And I've seen some wonderful discourse from hiring people saying that Ben Caldwell is ruining the job market by a hashtag. <laughs> True. True story. But it's not just the agencies. Where this really has to start is being able to pressure the funding sources, which a lot of times is going to be government. Wait a minute. Hold on. Because 100% right. I don't see how done. that I'm, solves... I'm just like, okay, done. <laughs> so, so we're moving on to the next point. But I don't just see said how that, that Kurt solves... was 100% right. I don't see how that solves education. Therapy Notes not only combines billing, scheduling, and notes into one easy-to-use software, they now also offer group telehealth, up to 15 clients in a group session at a time, and secure messaging features. And with their 24-7 customer service, they're ready to assist you no matter where your practice takes you. Therapy Notes allows you to do it all. Whether you're a solo clinician or part of a group practice, you'll have all the tools for success at your fingertips with Therapy Notes. Learn more at therapynotes.com and use promo code MODERN for two months free. I think we actually need to do a better job of making sure that the education that says that they teach therapists actually do the teaching of therapists. I understand that there's already things, and I'm not an expert on education, but my thought process is when we have, when we have universities and schools that basically if you pay them enough money, they will tell you that you've been trained to be a therapist and then you can never get a job and you struggle to do the work and those kind of things. If we have that system in place, I think it's very hard for us to, to increase in the respect that we have because there is so many people who are trying to find jobs and putting downward pressure on things and it's not necessarily even accurate. So to me, I feel like we have to actually improve the vetting of the education and not necessarily just adding on courses that have such little relevance or, or units. It's actually making sure that if, if a university is accredited, that it is something where they're going to provide high-quality education. Okay, but here's the challenge. and I, I'm with you in spirit and in philosophy. Let's say that we vet the education more carefully. Let's say that in the process of vetting the education more carefully, we decide that there are some programs that right now award graduate degrees that should not be able to award graduate degrees that lead to licensure. So that kicks out some programs. We already have an issue of mental health shortage around the state, around the country. We're already at least in some senses, not producing enough new competent graduates. And so if you knock out some of the education programs and, and figuring out which ones to knock out and which ones to leave in creates its own set of problems, but let's say that we can do that. Well, then you have a lot fewer therapists entering mental health care. And that may be fine and good and, and actually serve some goods, but... If you don't have enough people who are able to provide mental health services, then you see our scope of practice get chipped away at by substance abuse counselors, by peer counselors, by applied behavior analysts. By coaches? By coaches. And so anything that we do here, and, and you guys know, like we're, we're practically family at this point. Like we are. We, are. we agree it's on weird. many things. It's totally weird. But any changes that we make that are large in scale to the system that may be necessary and virtuous and appropriate and worth fighting for are going to have systemic impacts. 
I agree. And I, I, I speak back to the point of we have a mental health shortage and I don't know how many therapists I have call me that say I'm having trouble finding a job. So to me, I think it's a mismatch of the skill set and the education and the people and the, the, the roles that are actually being filled in the system. So 100% correct there. So there's, there's, so, so well, I, there's, there's enough therapists, they're just not as well trained as they need to be to get the jobs that are be able to fill. So, okay. And they're and, unwilling to go work in rural areas in public mental health yeah, where they might have actually sure. good pay and good job and security. And then we can talk about technology, but we have MRI. And the other, well, the other half is, Fulfilling mental health workforce with less qualified people is not the answer either. Nope. And having people come into this field who are just going to rapidly go through the education system and aren't qualified does all of us a disservice because we all know bad therapists leave a stain on us all. Amorette, welcome. Hi, uh, you're speaking to my heart here, so I just was like, okay, I have to raise my hand. <laughs> Thanks um, for coming up. Absolutely. One of, so two sort of eye-opening things happened to me my final year of grad school. One is that I attended a San Gabriel Valley camped meeting where you were on the panel, and it was a panel of what are some other things you can do with your degree besides just sit in a chair and talk to people? Do you remember that? Yes, I do. I was talking about, um, I think, consulting. or I, I might have even been talking about community mental health. I don't remember. But yeah, I remember that panel. And I think you were talking about like you know helping interns and, and helping people in the field, that that's one option that you can do. There was someone else who was talking about, um, she was an eHarmony VIP that's right, matchmaker. That. <laughs> that because of her skill set of understanding relationships, she could do that. And I thought, why isn't this part of the standard curriculum you know, in terms of what can you do with your degree. Um, I know in high schools, they're starting to teach kids, hey, here's how the stock market works. Here's what insurance is. Here's a financial planning class. Not all high schools do this, and they really should. Um, and so I feel like in the same way that we have a couple requirements of grad school, you have practicum, right? So you have to have your client load. You have personal therapy hours, at least my grad school did, and I think all of them should. You have case consultation. Why not have something that is like, you know, here's what you can do with your degree. Um, the second thing that happened to me was that I was asked to be on a panel at my school. I went to Cal Lutheran University up at the Oxnard campus. And uh, they just said, hey, hey, some graduates come and talk to, you know, the, the folks who are graduating this year. And... They said, what are the things you would want to know as a graduate, uh, someone graduating? And I said, well, know some CBT. <laughs> because <laughs> if you're going to go are... into community mental health, you've got to know some CBT. <laughs> That's right. I was not groomed for private practice. I was pretty much groomed for you're going to go into community mental health. You're going to do a lot of groups. You're going to work with a lot of people that you know, need the services. And yeah, you're a newbie and you don't know what you're doing, but... These are the match that we tend to find is the people who need it the most get with the people who know the least about how to do it and how to help or feel the least competent and prepared. Mm -hmm. So the program that I was in was saying, no, some CBT. Or no, they were saying, just be ready for community mental health. Yeah. So I went in and said, no, some CBT and no, some trauma work. Absolutely. Because everybody comes in with some kind of trauma and they were shocked. And 
I, I, that just was sort of crazy to me that they wouldn't know that, you know? <laughs> like grad programs that didn't know like that trauma is a, a, is a thing. Well, and this is speaking to one of the points and part of the problem of the field of therapy is this is a field is based on what has been. It's not what could be. It's not what is. It's trotting out the same speakers talking about the same things over and over. And anybody who's listened to us for a long time, seen just kind of our banter with Ben, Ben is very near and dear to our heart. And there's constantly a, even me poking at him of like, hey, you're speaking our language and we're adopting a lot of his language too. Come up with something new so that way you're not saying the same thing over and over. And we actually did tell him this, even though he walked out of the room and now you're talking about him behind his back. <laughs> Come on, dude. That's his so, choice, though. He left. I mean, fair game. The, the, the problem is, is that our, our whole idea of what this field is, is that we all are needing to learn about all of these people who came up with things. You know, we all know Aaron Beck. We all know Sigmund Freud. We all know these people who birthed therapy. And that's a good thing, but we also shouldn't necessarily have to be based in, I know Don Jackson's name from studying for my licensing exam 12 years ago. And from my understanding, Don Jackson is a phenomenally brilliant strategic therapist, and I have never used any of his principles, but it's required learning for what we should have to do. Somebody's making a decision that we need to keep these people's names here whether you choose to practice them or not, in the interest of client protection. And these are the kinds of things that need to change because these are more examples of what therapy has been rather than what therapy can be. And that's really the energy that walking out of this is, walking out of therapy reimagined is, is that we're hoping that you are empowered to be what you can be. Wow, that sounds like a 1990s army advertisement. Be all that you can be. <laughs> Thryzer is a payment platform designed for out-of-network therapy. As a therapist, you would use Thryzer to charge clients for sessions and collect your full rate up front. From the client's perspective, Thryzer links to their health plan, so insurance claims are automatically submitted for them upon every charge. From there, Thryzer manages the claims end-to-end -end so that your clients don't have to worry about manually submitting super bills or getting on calls with insurance. The best part? Thryzer allows clients to only pay their co-insurance portion for sessions, while Thryzer covers the rest of your fee and waits for reimbursement on their behalf. They also offer you an instant benefits calculator for free, allowing you to provide upfront transparency to prospective clients on their out-of-network coverage. Therapists only pay a standard 3% credit card processing fee per session with no additional fees. Visit join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist to get started and use our promo code modern therapists to receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. But this is really where the energy and the movement needs to go, is that we need the freedom to be what our clients need us to be, not forcing them into what somebody had work on their best day in the thing that they invented. 
And I think to take that further, because I, I, and this was something that I felt like I was wanting to talk about earlier, is just this idea that relying on people who did therapy 50 years ago to tell us how to do therapy now doesn't make sense. And I think the other aspect of that is forcing something that doesn't necessarily fit into the same molds, into this evidence-based practice or into some of these other things can be very difficult when you're trying to actually face another human being in the room or in their home or wherever you're meeting them where they are. And I think to me, the piece that really has called to me on this movement, and I'm making a very inelegant transition, but I'm going to go for it anyway, is when we're actually saying, hey, we're not going to do these evidence-based practices, or we are, and we're going to choose to, but we're not going to be forced to do something that doesn't fit, and we're not going to force to put ourselves in some sort of cookie-cutter box, we're actually stepping into leadership. We're stepping into, this is who I am as a clinician, and this is how I'm going to show up in the room, and I like to always take it further, and this is how I'm going to show up in the world. And I know, and I've said this before, I said this last year, but I have always been told I'm too big, I'm too much, I need to be quiet, because I would challenge the status quo. I was actually called the canary in the mine at one point, <laughs> or a lightning rod, because I would say, why are we doing this? It doesn't make sense. Why do we have to do this thing? Well, it's required, or we've always done it this way, or this is how we get our funding. It's like, yeah, did you actually read how we get our funding? Did you actually read what the intentions are? So to me, getting creative, getting loud, and saying, I'm going to be loud regardless, has been hugely overwhelming to me, but has been extremely empowering to me. And so to me, I think, when we're able to step out and say, I don't care if you think I'm doing this the wrong way, I grabbed a law and ethics expert, so I know that I'm at least not too far outside the lines. <laughs> no, I, I literally text Kurt, and I'm like, hey, can I do this thing? Because when you want to get creative, you, you have to make sure that when you decide to cross the line, you're doing it consciously. And most likely, the line is pretty wiggly. Because if it's actually in the client's best interest, if it's clinically effective, if it's something that's going to help society potentially you walk the line. What I was talking about earlier, we walk the line so that we can actually increase education or increase the interventions we do that actually make a difference for people because they actually are relevant and not just checking boxes on regulations. And then when we keep pushing forward, oh, I like that. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs> but if we keep pushing into these other spaces and we also stand up and be activists and advocates and actually stand up and do things and take a stand on things, I think that's when we actually make real change. And I think that's the thing where we can be in our offices and make a revolution because we can show up so authentically in the room with our clients that they're like, this is what therapy is. Holy guacamole, Batman, I got to get somebody, my friends all need to know that therapy is actually something that's worthwhile and that has changed my life. But then if we can also stand up 
and do this in our communities and, and on these larger scales, like what we were talking about earlier today. I think that to me is exciting because as therapists, we see a part of humanity that no one sees. We see the quiet spaces where people are talking about killing themselves. And we know what that pain is and we know what is actually driving them. And we can say, you know what? This is societal. You know what? This is something that can actually change, that we can have an impact on. And so for me, I feel like if we can actually, for those of us that, that want to use our voices in this way, if we can feel empowered to do so, that's what the therapy movement's about for me. I think we've got Sage coming in. Okay. Sage Mendez McLeish. I, I don't know the point that you're going to bring up, but I'm going to bring you, up you don't, our no. conversation earlier today. Sage and I were talking a little bit earlier today, and Sage works with a lot of uh, youth who are transgender. Yeah. And part of this is also getting to that last 10% or that last 70% of whatever our definition is. <laughs> but what, what Sage, what Sage was telling me is research on youth who are transgender is basically... Okay, we've kept him alive. Yeah. And, and I think Can that, I just say motherfucker? <laughs> 50, and, 50% of trans youth will try to commit suicide. 50. 50. But we are just worried about what keeps them alive, and it's two things, right? It's using their name and their pronouns, which is the bare minimum of human decency. So above that is, like, everything. But we're not really... We don't care, sort of, about outcomes ahead of, like, cool, you're not dead, moving on. And I think that this is really where the, the people who've come to us and said, now that I'm here, now what... Yeah. Now that this research has been, now what? Now that the therapy movement is here, now what? Right. Brings well, well, as far as now what, Sage is going to talk about that tomorrow. Hmm. Well, <laughs> yeah, it's literally called I'm affirming now what. But Good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I guess I came up here because you were talking about we get to see the, the, the spaces where somebody is going to talk about, is talking about committing suicide and you know that's something that I just keep coming back to um, because in my practice that's just a real thing I'm not a therapist I'm an ed consultant and a professor but I keep getting calls from my colleagues that are like hey we have a kid um, who's on this college campus I'm an adjunct and they just call me and they're like you're trans I know you work with trans kids um, or college students can you just like talk to them and make sure they're I don't know, like, not going to die. They're going to pass. They're on that edge of, like, passing, not passing. And so, you know, we get to see those spaces. But really what I do, this is, like, how I keep kids alive. You ready? Yes. We hang out on Tuesdays at a table outside the snack shack, and I ask them how things are going. That's it. That's, That's like it. it. That's it. And so it's interesting that like we get to see those moments of like working with people. I keep getting on this table. Um, yeah, we we get to have those moments as as therapists or people who work with people. But like it's those are pedestrian moments that we get to live with them. And you know, even it's though they're huge, connection. yeah, it's human connection. And you can't manualize human connection. Yeah. And so, on, on this point of now what, it, it really does come to this existential question of what do we want the meaning of the rest of what we do to be? And, and whether this is for you and your practice, 
is for you in research that is absent and starting to think about things that haven't been thought about. This is really the opportunity of our therapy movement. And I think that part of what we have as being undefined and what's unfinished is we're potentially never going to be finished. And, and we're I, and not think, you. Isn't that the point, though? We're not. Well, we're not unfinished, but I want to just, I want to really put this, we're not you. We are two people, and we're growing to include all of you, but we don't know your perspective. We don't know your mind. We don't know what you're seeing, and so we want to stay connected in these spaces and really understand what it is that the two of us need to be talking about, what the two of us need to be putting into the the, the curriculums of our of our conferences we want to make sure that we're doing what we need to do based on what you notice that we're missing because we've added podcast episodes they're like hey you didn't talk about this or oh you said that wrong we're like come on the podcast <laughs> like we want to know what we're missing and the i think at least the 10 to you know 70 percent is making sure that we stay aware because it's constantly evolving and it's constantly something where there's new things that we need to learn and we want to hear it from the people who feel strongly like we do, that there is something that we can do to fix the world. And so we have just committed to Therapy Reimagined 2020. (laughs) September 25th and 26th, it's going to be back here in Los Angeles. And... The next step of this movement is you filling out speaker applications, filling in even what Katie and I can't see. It's not only coming and speaking at our conference, but actually going to other conferences with this message, empowered by Katie and I have your back. Or at least as best as we can. We're yeah, two people, don't don't man. like don't run that too far. But yeah, like we're two people, man. <laughs> but we're the, growing though. We're getting more people. But this is really where the the movement of what's undefined of what's left is because we're two people with a conversation. The movement is you. The movement is, you know, we're the face of it. But we don't want to be the face of it. We want the the movement to be us as a field. And that's actually you walking out of here empowered to make that next choice, to make meaning out of what's coming next when you feel that you've already hit there. You know, this is that great existential question that Irv Yalom's therapy forces people to face. You're here. You have some place that you're going. It's up to you to fill in the why. It's up to you to fill in the follow-through of what comes next and if what our job is, is to launch you into that, to give you a nice firm shove out onto a stage when you're not ready to talk to a room full of people. <laughs> that sounds so awful, Kurt. <laughs> We're going to shove you on a stage, even if you're not ready. Well, and, and this is really where, what, what makes Therapy Reimagined so special is that we don't have the same voices coming out and saying the same things, Ben Caldwell excluded. It's, <laughs> He's back in the room. <laughs> it's putting new voices out there, people who don't have a resume of something cool that they did 40 years ago that they're still talking about. Or 80 years ago. <laughs> it's putting people out there who have new ideas now. 
And they might not be the most confident and their voice might shake and they might say things and ramble on about things, but the spirit is there and that's what makes the therapy movement happen. So let's, so let's keep having the conversations we need to have. Let's keep trying to do it better. Let's keep having the community that we have right now. I just feel so warm and cuddly and wonderful, and I want to hug everybody. So anybody that's up, I'm hugging. I'm, I'm, like, I'm all in on the hugs. Um, but we're a little short on time, and so we probably should wrap up. So until next time, I'm Kurt Widhelm with Katie Vernoy and the therapy movement. Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes. Thanks to our partner, Therapy Notes, the highest rated practice management solution for behavioral health. Don't forget, use promo code MODERN for two free months. Remember to check out Thryzer. They are passionate about making out-of-network therapy work for everyone. Clients save upfront on therapy while therapists earn their full rate. Get started in minutes on join.thrizer.com forward slash modern therapist and use the promo code modern therapists and receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions.